welcome to Peacemaking in Paris, presented by Professor Sir Hugh Strawn for UCL Institute of Education. This series marks the centenary of the Peace Conference in 1919, when the United States and Allied powers met in Paris to decide the terms of the peace settlements with the defeated Central Powers. I'm Simon Bendry, Director of UCL Institute of Education's First World War Centenary Battlefield Tours programme. In an earlier podcast series, From Amiens to Armistice, Sir Hugh looked at the sequence of Allied victories from the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August 1918 to the armistice negotiated by Germany on the 11th of November 1918. In Peacemaking in Paris, he reflects on the peace conference and its legacy. In this first podcast, he considers the process that led Germany to seek an armistice and the basis on which Germany thought the final peace settlement would be negotiated. From the perspective of hindsight, Germany's decision to provoke the United States was indeed a major miscalculation. But if you judge the situation from the perspective of April 1917, when the United States entered the war, then the decision looks much less absurd. Germany could calculate that it would lose the war by 1919 or at the very latest 1920, whether the United States was a belligerent or not. By the early 20th century, the United States is the world's leading economic power, and its resources are effectively devoted to the side of Germany's enemies. So the longer the war goes on, the more the United States invests in an allied, that is to say, an entente victory, the more that makes it likely that Germany will eventually find itself overwhelmed, irrespective of how well it fights this war. So it needs to win the war soon, by 1918, and it can afford to risk a US entry in order to achieve that objective. If it can cut off United States supplies to Europe, which is its hope by declaring unrestricted U-boat warfare, then its chances of winning a major military victory in 1918 are going to be greater. That doesn't happen, principally because In 1917, when Germany wages unrestricted U-boat warfare, it does not simultaneously wage a major military campaign in the West. Instead, its forces are diverted to the East, to the war against Russia, and by the autumn, to the war against Italy, which gives the Allied powers the chance to prioritise the U-boat threat in 1917, concentrate on securing those maritime links, win the Battle of the Atlantic, which will underpin their resource base for 1918. Then in 1918, they can move over to the threat in land warfare, the threat in France, first of all dealing with Germany's major offensives of the first part of 1918, and then themselves moving over to the attack in late 1918. What nobody could expect in late 1918 was that those offensives, beginning with the French counterattack on the Marne in July 1918 and then the Battle of Amiens in August 1918, would lead to victory that year. The expectation on the Allied side was that the war would be won militarily when the American Expeditionary Force arrived in strength, which it would not do until the summer of 1919 by which time something like 4 million American troops would be in Europe, equivalent to the British and French armies combined, and it would give the Allies an overwhelming numerical superiority. 
The fact that the Germans sought an armistice at the beginning of October 1918 was a source of surprise to the Allied statesmen, and they weren't entirely sure how seriously Germany could mean this intention to seek an armistice. An armistice is not a peace settlement in itself. An armistice is no more than a pause in the fighting. It's negotiated for a set period, and it has to be renewed until you move from an armistice to a final peace agreement. It's a pause at the military level. It does not betoken the end of a war in political terms. So throughout October 1918, while the negotiations that lead to the armistice are going on, there is almost no political dimension to those discussions. The concern is simply to deprive Germany of sufficient military power so that the armistice can become more permanent. It's also important to remember that there is not one set of armistice negotiations, but actually five sets of armistice negotiations going on. The first request for an armistice comes from Bulgaria at the end of September, principally because it's exhausted and it's facing military defeat. The alliance, what Eric Ludendorff, the first quartermaster general of the German army, calls the quadruple alliance, is unravelling. The armistice breaks the geographical connections which hold the quadruple alliance together. Germany is the most important of the allied powers within this quadruple alliance, but it has common borders with Austria-Hungary, its principal ally in southeastern Europe. Austria-Hungary has direct connections with Bulgaria, and Bulgaria has direct connections to the Ottoman Empire. So all these empires join up one to the other. Bulgaria is the pivot of this. It is the centre of the communication system. Its collapse means that the railway links that run from Berlin to Vienna to Istanbul are ruptured in the Balkans, and that the riverine link along the Danube through Vienna to Belgrade to the Black Sea, that that too is ruptured. So the alliance physically cannot move troops from one front to another quickly. Moreover, the German army really doesn't have enough men anymore to shift from the Western Front to the other fronts, to the Balkan Front, where Bulgaria is under threat, or to the Ottoman Front to support the Turks. In divisional strength, it looks to the Allies to be reasonably powerful. But the reality is most of these divisions are hollowed out. Germany has lost something like a million men killed, wounded and captured in the first half of 1918. And in September 1918, it's suffering from the influenza epidemic to a far greater extent than the Entente armies are. Something like 680,000 German soldiers were hospitalised in September 1918 alone. So when Bulgaria calls for reinforcements as a condition for it not seeking an armistice, the German army can't get the troops there because the railway links have collapsed and probably haven't got the troops available to send, even if they could move them there. Bulgaria only asks for seven divisions. Somewhat reluctantly and later in the day, Ludendorff says maybe he can manage it, and then he says, well, actually, even if we can manage it, I'm not sure we can do it. So the decision which led Germany to seek an armistice is militarily driven, but it reflects a growing sentiment in some political circles which is a realisation that they're not going to win the war 
They must therefore negotiate their way out of this war. Ludendorff goes to Germany's new chancellor, Max von Baden, and says to him, we have to seek an armistice immediately. Max von Baden says, couldn't you at least give me a bit of time to negotiate our position so that we're slightly less on the back foot? And Ludendorff is insistent that it has to happen now. Ludendorff does actually say to one member of his staff at the German headquarters, this is just a way of buying time. So it's not entirely clear, even at this juncture, that Ludendorff thinks this will lead to peace. The German offer goes specifically to Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States, because the offer is a request for an armistice negotiated around the 14 points of Woodrow Wilson, which he had enunciated in January 1918. In other words, it includes some idea of what the political settlement would be. So already we're seeing from the German point of view the idea that what is a narrowly military agreement could be part of a political deal. And this request for an armistice with the 14 points implicit in the deal will become very important in how Germany subsequently protests when it has to deal with the final peace settlement, because in its view, the 14 points are not honoured. The Entente powers, the United States, and what it calls its associated powers, are determined that they will not discuss politics at this juncture. What they want each of the armistices to do is to sort out a military problem. Remember that this is only the second armistice that has been initiated, the German armistice, after the Bulgarian one. What will follow at the end of October is an Ottoman armistice. After that, the Austrians will seek an armistice on the Italian front on the 4th of November. And then the Hungarians, who by then have split from Austria, don't finally settle their terms for ceasing hostilities until the 13th of November. And that sequential rhythm of armistices, with the German armistice on the 11th of November, the one when we think of the war as actually ending, that sequential tempo of the armistices means that each armistice is a building block leading to the next one. When Bulgaria surrenders, the immediate response from the Allies is, how does this better enable us to defeat Germany and the remaining Allies? They're thinking, can we get from the Balkans, from the Danube, to Vienna, to the heart of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and in their moments of fantasy, can we even get to Berlin? Can we drive right through Europe from the south to the north? When the Ottomans seek an armistice, then they're thinking, does this open up the Dardanelles and the Black Sea? Does this mean that what we failed to achieve at Gallipoli in 1915 could now be achieved? And if we do achieve that, does that mean that we could resuscitate an Eastern Front, that we could actually bring Russia back into the war by supporting the whites against the reds, by supporting the old monarchical order against the communists, and therefore have an active Russian front, with the result that we would have Germany under attack both from the west, from France, and from the east, from Russia. Each armistice will therefore contribute to the capacity for strategic manoeuvre, which will enable the Allies to deliver victory. Woodrow Wilson responds in two ways. Although the United States has declared itself only an associate of the Entente powers of the pre-existing belligerents, it still treats those other powers as its allies. And so Washington communicates with particularly Britain, France and Italy, 
and says, this is the offer we have received from Germany. We need to coordinate our response. So Woodrow Wilson is put in the driving seat, but he behaves as an ally and brings the other powers into the equation, something which the Germans had hoped to bypass if they could. The second thing that he does is that he insists that he will not negotiate with a Germany that is still led by an imperial regime which has, in the view of most of the world, provoked this war, which has broken international agreements by invading Belgium in 1914, which is characterized as not only being undemocratic, which should Americanize is a cardinal sin, but also by behaving in militarist and even outrageous ways in its use of armed force. So Wilson sets that as a condition, that there must be a change of regime. In other words, the Kaiser must go. Many Germans feel affronted by that. The issue of political reform in Germany had been on the table in 1914. Germany is an interesting hybrid. It is an empire with an emperor, with a Kaiser, who is an autocrat who unites military and political authority, who in theory is the supreme commander in this war, although the personality of Kaiser Wilhelm II does not make him an effective commander. At the same time, it is a country with universal male suffrage. Every German male citizen aged over 21 has the vote, and that is more than every British male has before 1918. The Reichstag is therefore democratically elected. But its power to behave as a democracy is limited by the Prussian Diet, the Prussian Assembly that is an inheritance of Germany as it was before unification in 1871, which acts as an upper chamber, a sort of House of Lords, a revising chamber, moderating what the Reichstag does. That inheritance from 1871 Prussia looks increasingly absurd in a Germany as it is in 1914 then the second largest industrial power in the world. It's overtaken Britain. It's second to the United States. It has the largest socialist party in the world in 1914. It should, it seems, be moving towards a more democratic constitution and perhaps to a constitutional monarchy rather than to an absolute autocracy. So reform is on the agenda. And by the time that Woodrow Wilson is responding to Max von Baden's request for an armistice, the Kaiser's powers are being moved onto a more constitutional footing. But Woodrow Wilson does not give Germany credit for that. The Kaiser will be toppled from power by the time the armistice is negotiated on the 11th of November 1918, not by constitutional change, but by revolution. Revolution from below and revolution from above. It begins this revolution with mutiny in the navy. It spreads from the port cities to Berlin. The majority socialist party is caught by surprise. It has effectively become a partner in the war effort. And it finds itself having to impose its own leadership on a revolution that comes from the streets. The Kaiser himself doesn't want to respond to that revolution. His immediate reaction, as you might expect from an autocrat, is to say the army must go and shoot these people down in the streets. We must reimpose authority. The army is not prepared to do that. As it became more and more obvious that the Allies would take the time to impose conditions which meant 
that Germany would effectively lose its military and naval capabilities and would be unable to resume fighting. This would then not be a temporary pause. It would become a permanent end to the war. And so Ludendorff advised three weeks into the negotiations that the armistice negotiations be broken off. And the result was to lose any remaining credibility he had with the German government, and he found himself sacked. A man called Wilhelm Gröner succeeds him as first quartermaster general. Gröner, faced with revolution in Berlin by November the 8th, 9th, 1918, consults the army, and the majority of army commanders say they are not ready to follow the Kaiser any longer. In other words, the army is putting its own integrity, its own authority as a national force for United Germany, its own idea of its status as the embodiment of the German nation ahead of its loyalty to the Kaiser. So this is the revolution from above. The Kaiser has lost his political legitimacy on the streets, his legitimacy with the people, and now he's lost his legitimacy with the army. And it's the loss of the army support that triggers the Kaiser's abdication. It happens on the 9th of November, just the point where the armistice terms have been sent from Compiègne, where they have been negotiated, to Berlin for ratification. One of the challenges this creates for the Allies is they don't actually know who holds power in Germany any longer. It's not clear whether the plenipotentiaries representing Germany any longer have the authority of government. The signal comes back from Berlin that yes, they do have the authority and that they can agree terms. So that problem is surmounted. The armistice terms are accepted by the Germans at just about 5 a.m. 5 a.m. is the time put on the document. It's actually 10 minutes shy of 5 a.m. on the 11th of November 1918. And the armistice is to take effect at 11 a.m. that same day. So that's the day we think of the war ending, because the war against Germany has ended, the principal power in the Quadruple Alliance, in the Central Powers Alliance. It's the day when the German army stops fighting in the West, and it's the day when crowds in Paris, in London, in New York, took to the streets and went wild with joy. Germany didn't remember it in quite those terms because the much bigger event was the revolution of the 9th of November, the end of the Kaiserreich, the end of imperial rule, and the opportunity to create a German republic. So even for Germany, there is the prospect of a new order coming out of this war. The problem for them is whether that new order can be legitimate if it comes out of the experience of defeat rather than from the sensations of victory. The fact that the armistice is seen as the end of the war in Paris and in London, and very largely in Washington too, is crucially important for the peace negotiations. People are asking, by five past 11 on the 11th of November 1918, when's my husband coming home? When's my father returning? The politicians, Georges Clemenceau, the premier in France, David Lloyd George, the prime minister in Britain, are both very anxious to respond to that they represent democracies, and they know what their people want. So demobilization begins almost immediately. And the challenge here is that the war isn't over. 
Today, we tend to think of the First World War as ending on the 11th of November 1918, on the day that Germany accepts the terms of the armistice. It did not. It did not end then because the armistice was only a temporary agreement. And more importantly, because the war was actually continued, particularly at sea through the maintenance of the Allied blockade of Germany, the economic war against Germany. Indeed, the Germans protest vehemently that a war that was being waged against soldiers is now being waged against women and children, against civilians who are being left hungry by a blockade that is tighter than it has ever been before. The result of giving up the German high seas fleet to the Allies is that the Allies are able to enter the Baltic. They can impose a tighter blockade than has been the case before the 11th of November 1918. And they're using that as an instrument to make sure that Germany sticks to its undertaking and that the move from armistice to a final peace agreement is fully affected. That continuation of the war is an essential background in understanding what we shall look at in the next podcast, which is what actually happened to Germany at Versailles during the course of the peace negotiations in 1919. That was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. You have been listening to Peacemaking in Paris, a Chrome Radio production for UCL Institute of Education. The producer was Katrina Oliphant, with sound design by Chris Sharp.